Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. I was thinking about this morning as I kept hearing around me people saying thank you. And I was just thinking how over the past however long it's been, it feels like 10 years and 10 minutes all at once. But the 10 days, I guess, that it's been since we got the, the original call and got the news out, the word that I've heard more than anything isn't why. It isn't no. It isn't even please. It's been thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I was just thinking about how without the right perspective, it's impossible to say thank you in times like this. And in fact, I often think that things that we go through in life, I'm not saying everything, and I'm not saying the devil's behind everything because he's not, but I am saying that there are things that we definitely face in life at times that I think are meant to steal our perspective that are meant to cause us to be so disappointed and discouraged and frustrated that, that not only do we, do we lose in that moment, but we lose the ability moving forward to, to live in that place of thankfulness because we always have something in the back of our mind that's speaking louder than the word of God and the promises of God. And I'm just so thankful that, that we have an unshakable hope and an unshakable faith that's been given to us by the Lord that reaches through the veil. Listen, it says it goes through the veil. That means it is not anchored in something earthly. It's not connected to something that is earthly. It's not connected to something that is made with human hands. It's not connected to something that we see in the natural or hear in the natural. It is an anchor that goes through the veil and it is anchored directly into the very presence of God. And that we have an unshakable hope because of that. Like, we never, ever, ever have to fear anything. Like, literally, there is nothing for the believer to fear. Think about, like, the greatest fear that, 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 that human beings have is, is the, the fear of death. And it's like, and that fear is swallowed up by Jesus. Like, like when we live with that eternal perspective, when we have that right perspective, we realize I'm not just living for today. I'm not just living for here. I'm not just living for now. I'm living for eternity. Like I've come into union with God. The spirit of God lives inside of me. The very spirit that, that, that left Adam when he sinned and the image of God that he was created bearing died. That very same spirit has now come back into me and taken up residence once again inside of a human being. And what was once dirt now has become eternal eternal like come on think about it God breathes on dirt why did he choose dirt why not something more beautiful I think is he wants us to realize it doesn't matter if it's the stuff that is trampled underfoot and considered to be uh, dirty and considered to be something that is a a nuisance and a pest and something that you don't want in your house and on your shoes and on your clothes something that would stain he takes that very thing and he gathers it up in his hands and he says I'll take the worst I'll take the lowest I'll take the stepped on I'll take the crushed and the decayed and I will form that into a man because once I breathe on him it doesn't matter what it was before it Becomes who I intended to be. And he just gathers dirt. 
I can just, like, I, I can just imagine, you know, I think about these things, like, I can imagine when, when, when all of creation, you know, because he, he created man after he had created all, a lot of other things, and I, I just imagine creation and the angels watching God, and, and, and they don't question him because they know that, that he is God, right? But there's got to be some wondering in their mind of, like, what's he doing now? Like, <laughs> what's he doing I mean, he's already made everything good. He created this, and it was good. He created that, and it was good. He created this, it was good. He created that, it was good. Like, he's just been creating good things. And then all of a sudden, he, he stoops down, and he starts to gather dirt together. And they're, and they're probably wondering, because everything else he spoke. Everything else he spoke, and it came to be. But he wasn't content to simply speak. He wanted to touch. Like, I'm thankful for his word and that he speaks. But I'm also thankful that he's not content to simply speak, that he wants to touch. He wants to get his hands on us. He wants to hold us. He wants to embrace us. He wants to touch us. And then he breathes, and the very first thing, that dirt now become Adam, which is very good. See, like, even good things become very good things when God breathes on them. Like everything's capable of getting better when God breathes on it, when God touches it. Amen. Think about it. Everything he creates is good. That means at that time, dirt was good. That was before the fall. It served a purpose. Everything in life served a purpose before the fall. Part of being born again is returning back to the original purpose that we were created for and bringing the earth back into dominion for the purpose it was created for. That's what God told Adam. Have dominion over the earth. No matter how good things are, let it get touched by God. Let him breathe on it. When you have no idea what good is until it's been touched by God and he's breathed upon it. And all of a sudden, something that was good becomes very good. Becomes exceedingly good. Maybe becomes exceedingly and abundantly beyond what we could even think of as good. Come on, this is amazing. That's why the gospel is good news, because this is the truth for us. Like, this isn't some fantasy we, we, we just use to placate ourselves or to, to try to numb ourselves. No, we don't have to be numb. We don't have to be numb. We can actually feel, because the truth is, is along with feeling the physical loss that we feel in life sometimes, which is very real. We're not robots that go through the earth and say, I don't feel that. It doesn't touch me. No, I very much feel it. It very much does touch me. But there's something greater that I feel, and there's something greater that's touched me than anything else that I've ever experienced. And at the end of the day, it says that, that though sorrow lasts for the night, that joy comes in the morning. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning, because... I read something that just made my soul come on fire when I read it. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 57. Because here's the thing. I think sometimes if we're not careful, we feel like, you know, we're waiting on something to happen. And I'm not saying there's never times of waiting, but I'm saying that sometimes we're waiting and, and really what we have and what we need is already within us and been given to us by the Lord for the thing that we're waiting to happen. And I don't think that sometimes it's us waiting on God. I think a lot of times it's God waiting on us. And I, I'm going to show you through his word because if I said it, that's one thing. But if he said it, that's a whole other thing. And he said it. Psalm 57, verse 4. My soul is among lions. I must lie down among those who breathe fire. 
even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. David was never afraid to say what he was facing. He was never afraid of it. He didn't run into a cave and say, there's no lions roaring about, there's no men with sharp teeth like swords and arrows, and, and, and there's no people breathing fire. Like him saying it wasn't happening didn't change what was happening. So he didn't live in denial of the fact that, you know what, right now things suck. Yeah. I, my mom is going to get me for that. <laughs> I'm sorry, mom. I'm saying it before you have to come tell me. I'm sorry. He's not afraid to say, you know what, right now when I look around, the circumstances of life are not good. But he doesn't stay there. See, we can, we can go to one of two ditches. We can either be so aware of life's circumstances that we lose our focus on him. Or we can think that by denying life's circumstances and acting like they don't exist, that that somehow gives us better focus on him. And the truth of the matter is the place where I believe he wants us that I find throughout the word. Like when, when the disciples are talking about Lazarus, right? Jesus is first trying to, be, he's trying to be gentle with them. You know, he's like, Lazarus is asleep. And they're like, well, if he's asleep, then just go wake him up. Right? Like the Lord is gentle. He's kind. He's speaking to them in a way. He's trying to, to say it to them in the nicest, gentlest way. But they don't get it. Like, whoa, well, if he's sleeping, then just, just go wake him up. So he looks at me and says, Lazarus is dead. Okay, like, I'm trying to say it nicely, and, and, and I want you to understand what's going on, because if you don't understand what's going on, you won't be able to worship, and you won't appreciate what I'm about to do. So he says to them, like, Lazarus is asleep. They're like, well, then just go wake him up. And he finally just looks at he says, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sake. Because of what you're about to experience. And then he goes and does what Jesus does. And so David's like, right now, this is what's going on around me. But he doesn't stop there. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They've prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. He says, listen, like, like, they have a plan for my next steps. The enemy has a plan for my next steps. He has a, a pit waiting for me. Like, he has a plan. And all this stuff that's going on around me, like, he may not be able to cause all of it, but he will absolutely try to take every single bit of it and ca cause that to be what orders our next steps. It says the righteous man's steps are order the Lord. What does that mean? Those who are in right standing with him and who know him the way he can be known, who are filled with his spirit, who are walking not after the flesh but after the spirit of God, their steps are ordered by the Lord. But I promise you, if we step outside of that and we start living on our own understanding and we stop pursuing the spirit and we actually live by the flesh we live by the first part of this verse alone rather than letting the first part of that verse push us into the next part of that verse our steps the enemy has a plan for them as well and it leads to a pit but then he says something that i thought was amazing i'll think about this 
Look at what he says right here. Don't miss this stuff when you read through these scriptures. Like, don't, don't, David wasn't just trying to, like, make the Bible a little bit longer by adding the descriptions that he did of the enemy. He says, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows. Teeth stay in the mouth and can only harm those who come close enough to be bit. But spears and arrows are launched from the mouth, according to David. What's he saying? You know the fiery darts of the enemy? They don't always just come straight from the demonic realm. Oftentimes, they might come from the mouths of people who are being used by him. But you have to see it for what it is and not take it personal. That's why you have the shield of faith. It's like, no, God, I trust you. I believe in you. I know that you have a plan for my life. And I know that no matter what a man would say, what you say matters the most. And so if, if, if someone was to have teeth like spears and arrows, that means they're just launching harmful attack. Like arrows and spears are not meant to stay in a place. They're meant to be launched. That means they, they're not, you're not just safe as long as you're not close enough for them to actually physically bite you. It means you could be far away from them and they're launching an attack out of their mouth. But see it for what it is. That's why we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Why? Because if he didn't say it, what does that have to do with me? If it didn't come from him, why would I let it come to me? If it's not what he says about me, why would I let it be what I say about me? There's always going to be opinions that I can grab onto, but there's a truth greater than any opinion that grabs onto me when I know who I am and believe who, what he said about me. So David's talking about all this stuff, and then he says this, and My heart is steadfast, O oh God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O oh Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens, and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O oh God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that it's alive. I thank you that right now, as I'm speaking, that you would speak through me, that it would be from your spirit, God, from your heart, from your mouth, God, that our hearts would be good soil. Lord, that our hearts would be wide open to you, that we would receive your word as a seed, Father, that would begin to, to put down roots and establish itself in our heart, God, and that the fruit that it will produce will be goodness and patience and love and kindness and gentleness and mercy and, 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 and meekness. And God, I thank you that, that the world that doesn't know you will taste the fruit of our lives that you're producing by your word and see that you are good. That they will see your goodness by tasting the fruit of the spirit that you are producing in our lives as we live yielded to you. Let this word be implanted into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I was just thinking about how I was comparing, contrasting in my mind. And, and I've, I've, I've spoke before about John and about his disappointment, so I'm not going to spend too long there. But, you know, the apostle, I mean, I mean uh, John the Baptist was the one who came, who sees Jesus in his mother's womb and leaps and is filled with the Spirit, right? He, he knows who Jesus is before any other human being knows who Jesus is as far as exactly why he came and what he came to do. And, and, and so he is the one who, when he sees Jesus, says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He knows who Jesus is and he knows why Jesus came before anybody else on earth does. 
and, and, and he's the one who says that there's, that, that there's one coming, uh, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He must increase, I must decrease. That John, who is out in the, in the wilderness just proclaiming the gospel, who's roaming the city streets proclaiming the gospel, and people are coming, and they're being baptized into repentance, and he's telling them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, change the way that you think, because it's here now. Like the thing that you've been waiting for, is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's no longer something that we're waiting for. It's no longer something that we're sitting around and praying for God to send. We're not having to go back and and read the prophecies and try to figure this thing out. No, he's here now, so you're going to have to repent because the kingdom has come. Your thinking is going to have to change. What you thought before he came has to change now that he's come. And that's a good word for us today. Anything I thought before he came has to change once he comes. It has to line up with him now that he's here. It has to be brought into subjection to his voice, to his truth. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what I want, what he said. And once he speaks, once he comes, now my mind has to change because he's not going to. He's unyielding. Like he's so sure of himself. He's never going to change. He believes that he is the first and the last the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who speaks and the sun comes forth from his mouth. He is so confident and so secure in who he is that he will never change. He's not a chameleon, even a little bit. He has never changed. He is forever and ever and ever the internal, uncreated, and undying. He is God, the most, the, the most powerful being, force, spirit that has ever existed and ever will exist. That's who he is, and he is well aware of that. And he's never going to change. So if he's not going to change, and we're at odds with each other, either I'm going to change, or I'm going to live apart from his truth, because his truth is never going to change. He's not going to come and say, well, you know, I know what I said, but... Because he's not caught off guard. He knew exactly what you were going to come to him with your reason why what he's saying can't be true before you even experienced that reason. And he said what he said anyways. Come on, that's not like cold and unloving. That's saying, listen, you have to be anchored in something greater than what you've experienced. And so I'm going to speak something, and once I speak it, it will forever be true. So you never have to wonder if I've changed my mind. You never have to wonder who I am or what I think about you. You'll never have to have insecurity because there is no shadow of turning or changing in me. You can be eternally confident and secure because once I've said it, it's truth. The only thing that's left now is for you to change the way that you think now that you understand what I've said. That's, that's how we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. It, it's, I used to think this, and now I know what he said. The way that I think changes, which changes my life. Now I'm transformed, not because I read something somewhere and I quoted it, but because I actually said, okay, if that's true, then that means that anything that would oppose that has to be a lie. So I'm going to live in that truth from now on, and suddenly my life is changed. I don't just have something I say. It's who I become. I'm being transformed. I'm no longer who I was before that truth came because that truth changes me. 
It's like, you know, we talked about the caterpillar and the butterfly, right? It's like it, the, the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and it comes out transformed. That, me, that same word where it talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, metamorpho, it means the same thing that happens to a caterpillar. What does that mean? It means it doesn't matter how much that butterfly tries to act like a caterpillar, it will never be a caterpillar again because it's no longer what it was. You can act like you were before you met Jesus. The only thing it's going to do is make you miserable and make the world wonder why there's a butterfly hanging out and crawling around on the ground acting like a caterpillar. Why do you keep wrapping yourself up like that and hanging upside down from a branch? Your head must be like ready to explode. That's what Paul was saying when he said to, to the people who were born again. He said there's, there's, there's envy and, and striving and, and, and gossiping and all this stuff going on among you. He says, why are you acting like mere humans? This, this is the word of God. Why are you acting like mere humans? He's not saying, why are you mere humans? He says, why are you acting like them? Why? Because before you got born again, the best you could do is act holy. Once you become born again, the worst you can do is act unrighteous and unholy. But it's an act. It doesn't change who you are. Too many Christians live with double jeopardy of the Lord, thinking that there's not enough good that I could ever do to become born again. But boy, once I get born again, there's anything, little thing that I do changes who I am in Christ. Come on, if you couldn't do enough good, if you couldn't do enough right, if you couldn't live holy enough on your own to become born again, then why on earth, once you become born again, do you think that any time you stumble, it changes who you are and your identity changes and lines up with what you've done? Your sin is not more powerful than the obedience of Jesus. What we miss out on is the blessing of living with a clean conscience and peace before the Lord and the security that comes with knowing I can walk into his presence boldly, not because I'm perfect, but because I'm following the perfect one and he's clothed me with righteousness. And when I have a clean conscience and I'm not living double-minded, I'm not living unstable, I can live secure. That means I can confidently come before him. So you're telling me you're perfect? No, I'm saying that Jesus is and he said, follow me. So I'm not going to follow the fact that a man that I know hasn't got it right. I'm going to follow the one who, who did get it right and said, follow me. And if I sin along the way. That's why the Bible says, and if you sin. Why? He's not condemning you to sin. He says, if you sin, not when you sin. He says, when you fast. Why is it we take one as an if and the other as a when and flip them around? As if sin is the expectation and fasting is the exception when the Bible says, when you fast and if you sin. I don't know, maybe there's something to that. But John the Baptist is, is thrown into prison. And we all know what happens. He, he comes to this place where the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, tells his friends, Go ask Jesus if he's even the one or should we look for another. And all that's changed, it's not Jesus. It's not God. It's not the truth. None of that has changed. In fact, what has changed since then is Jesus is doing every single thing that Jesus said, that the prophecy said that he would come and do. Everything that Jesus declared he was going to do was happening. So it wasn't Jesus that changed. The prophecies, once written, they're not changing, so the prophecies haven't changed. The only thing that's changed is John's circumstances. He went from being free to being in prison. And when his circumstances change, so does his mind. 
And the thing that he was so sure of before he found himself in prison becomes the very thing he questions once he finds himself there. Come on, I don't want that to happen to any of us. I never want the thing that we're sure of before our circumstances change become the thing that we question once they do. David, on the other hand, gets anointed as king after being overlooked by his father, gets anointed in front of his brothers. They all hear what God has said about him and see what God has done. They can actually physically see the anointing happening in front of them. Like we say, people are anointed. They, they weren't saying that in the spiritual realm. They were saying like, no, he's actually anointed. We watched the oil flow down from his head and drench his coat like, and leave a residue behind. Like we saw the prophet take the horn of oil and pour it over his head and say, today God has anointed you as king over his people. They saw that happen with their physical eyes. But then David gets sent back to go watch the sheep. If we ever think the anointing on our lives makes us above doing the thing that we had before we knew the anointing that we had, something is terribly wrong. If we ever find ourselves in a place saying, well, because of my anointing, I'm no longer going to do that. The anointing is not entitlement. It's a greater call to die. David gets sent back to watch the sheep. I'm sure the enemy came to him while he was there. Anointed one, huh? King, huh? His brothers are off in the army doing what a king would do, fighting battles. He's doing what a not king would do, tending to sheep. They're having war cries. He's hearing, bah. Like, literally, this is what's going on. And if you think the enemy left him alone because he was anointed, you're crazy. In fact, I, I imagine the enemy was after him even more because he could see the anointing on David's life. Don't be surprised when things come against you in this life and think that that's a quest that questions the anointing on your life. It's probably a confirmation of the anointing if you're following Jesus. If you're following Jesus. If you're following Jesus. You can't stop following him and go after following your own way and then blame what happens on him, on the enemy and say, well, the enemy's coming against me. No, you're coming against you. Peter said that. He said, rejoice when you're persecuted, but not if that persecution comes because of sin. What's he saying? You, you can't just sin and live after your flesh, and then when you have to walk in the, in the punishment or the consequence of it, then say, well, I'm just being persecuted. No, you're not. So David's watching the sheep, and then he gets called by his dad, and we all know the story, right? He, he, they, he gets sent to the battle, and he, 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 the, the, it doesn't start. See, so many things in life don't start with God saying, hey, I want you to go kill a giant. Sometimes it sounds like your father saying, hey, go serve your brothers, the very ones you were anointed in front of. The very ones that I passed over in front of every, all, all of them that said, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. You, I need you to go serve them lunch. And I think there's a lot of giants that still have their heads on because too many people that are anointed think that going and serving their brother's lunch isn't a big enough deal for them. And they're waiting for God to tell them to go kill the giant when they don't understand that the invitation to kill the giant is found in the invitation to go and serve someone. I mean, not... 
you know, you can, you can imagine no one would do that today. But back in David's day, that was a huge temptation. So what does David do? He understands there was a word that was written before the prophecy over my life and the anointing on my life to honor my father. And I'm not going to let what God said about me make me above what God said before me. I am never going to let a prophetic word over my life have more influence over my life than what God has already said before the prophetic word came. So I'm going to honor my father, even though I've been anointed king. Brings the lunch. And here's what happens. His brothers who know he's anointed by God, who know that he's going to be king, see him coming and begin to question his heart. Why have you come? And it's not enough for them to just say, why have you come? They have to point out his insignificance. And with whom have you left those few sheep? They couldn't even say, and with whom have you left the flock? Right, because that could leave in question, maybe David is the shepherd of the greatest flock that there is. They can't even say that. They have to make sure that anyone that's hearing and that David himself hears, you're so insignificant that you are the shepherd of our family. Oh, and just so you, everyone knows, he only has a few sheep. Why? Because if the enemy can get you to despise what you're doing right now in obedience to God, he can keep you from doing the thing that God's going to call you into next. And he understands that. If I can get him to just despise what God has him doing now, he'll never get to what God has him doing next. All that was meant to do was humiliate and embarrass David and make him leave. And here's the thing. His brothers didn't know what was about to happen. They're just letting the enemy use their mouth as a way to speak. That's why we got to be really careful who we allow to speak into our life and how much influence we give it. Because even people that are closest to David are letting their mouths be a tool of the enemy to try to discourage him and keep him from what God has it for him. Just because you are close to someone doesn't mean they're close to God. And if they're not close to God, they're incapable of speaking what God would have them to speak consistently into your life. And so David's undeterred. Why? Because he heard something about a promise a few minutes before. He heard what would be given to the man who would slay the giant. He would become wealthy beyond imagination. He would become a part of the royal family. He would be given the king's daughter. In other words, his family's lineage would change from that day forward. They would no longer be common people because he would become into union with royalty. And everybody born into that house from that day forward would be born into royalty. Now, he already has a promise from God, but now there's something in the natural. He doesn't ask his brother, wait, what did you say about me again? When you hear that someone said something about you, if it's not true, it's not true. Why do you need to hear it again? Yeah. No, what he asks is, wait, tell me again. What will be done for the man who defeats the Philistine? What's he saying? I, I don't really care what you say about me because I know what he said about me. What I'm, what I'm actually caring about is what is the reward? And so he obviously goes and we know the story. Slings a sling and the giant falls to the ground and then he takes the very thing the giant trusted in, cuts his head off with it, and then he holds his head up 
And the army of the Israelites can do what it couldn't do just a few minutes before. Because the courage of one man to believe the promise of God emboldened an army to believe that they could as well. And where they were once hiding in caves, now they were running in battle. Philistines are just dying left and right. You have no idea what your one ounce of obedience can do in the lives of so many people. You have no idea who's watching your life. And God never told him when he got up that morning, today, you're going to kill a giant. Why? Because he trusted David. That if I have his father tell him to go somewhere, he'll go. I don't have to tell David, go to the battle. I have someone for you to kill. I can just tell him, go serve your brother's lunch. And once he's there, once I tell him what's next, he'll do what's next. You see, so many people want God to tell them to get up and go kill a giant. When oftentimes, get up and go kill a giant sounds like get up and go love your wife. Get up and go serve your family. Get up and honor your husband. Get up and go to work. Do the thing that you have put in front of you. And don't just do it just to get by. Don't do it with a grumbling, complaining heart. Do it with gladness and joy because everything you do, you do as if unto the Lord. And how do you know that today on aisle seven, section B, I don't have a giant for you to kill? But you'll never get there if you don't do the little thing that I ask of you. But you do those little things and all of a sudden you're in the place that you need to be to do the big thing. I feel it. Trust me. Like, hey, and real quick, I just want to say, like, you guys are amazing. This church family is incredible. Like, walking through things with this church family around us, I, I, I honestly don't know how people do it without the Lord and without the people of God and the body of Christ around them. I, I don't know how people do it. I really don't. I don't understand. Like, I would be curled up in a fetal position if I didn't have him. And so you have John. So this David, this same David is the one who now, once he makes it past the giant, now he's got to face the king who wants to kill him because he's jealous of him. And he's running for his life and he's hiding in caves and people are trying to tell Saul where he is and there's a reward on his head and he's being hunted by the enemy everywhere that he goes and he's running from cave to cave and he's having to live amongst the Philistines. He's having to live amongst the people who are the enemy of God. He already killed their giant. Like, if they were smart, they wouldn't have let him come and live with them, but they did. And this David is the one who wrote this and I was just thinking about the difference between him and John because... When you look at what David writes, he says, listen, all this stuff's going on around me. That's true. John's looking around, and he's looking at his circumstances, and he's thinking, I'm here in prison. He came to set the captives free, huh? Well, why am I in prison? I, I did exactly what God called me to do, and it ended up here. Listen, just because you're doing what God calls you to do doesn't mean you'll never find yourself in an uncomfortable position. We have equated sometimes, if we're not careful, following Jesus with a life of ease rather than a life of his presence no matter where I am. Like, don't buy a gospel that says, like, if you follow Jesus, you'll never have to walk through hard times. David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear evil because you're with me. He didn't say, I don't walk through the valley of the shadow of death because you're with me. He said, I walk through it and I don't fear it because you're with me. He said he walks through it, though. Don't make your camp there. Don't pitch your your tent there and don't make your home there. Why? He said, I'll walk through it because you're with me. I won't fear evil. Not I won't see evil. Not I won't experience evil. 
Not there won't be evil around me. He just said, I won't be afraid of it because you're with me. And this David, when he comes into this time of being hunted and chased in caves, it's not fun. Like when you read the Psalms, you read and like my wife says she identifies with David, like the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, like, oh God, just slay me. And then two minutes later, it's just like, God, you're so good. <laughs> we were talking, you know, it's funny, we were talking a couple weeks ago and I asked her, I said, who's the, who's the first person you want to see when you get to heaven? And we were just talking about that and we said a few people and I said, what about like from the Bible? And she said, probably King David, you know, after Jesus, of course, right? Like. She said, probably King David. I just identify with him so much. <laughs> and we were talking about that. And, and, but this David, like, when you read his psalms, he's like, they, he, he talks about, like, the enemy wants to eat my flesh. Like, he literally says that. They want to devour my flesh. They want to cannibalize me. And he's like, I, it feels like he's forsaken at times. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He, he tells the Lord how he feels. He's not afraid to expose and be vulnerable with his heart to the Lord. The thing, though, is, is he doesn't let it stay there ever. Because right after, by God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you have never forsaken me. It's like, I just got to be honest with the Lord for a second, be vulnerable with my heart, and let him know how I'm feeling. But then I can't stay in those feelings and live in the fruit that they produce. I have to get back and anchor myself in truth. So this is how I feel, but this is what's true. And, and, and the thing that he said this morning that just lit me up was this line right here. And we'll, we'll close up with this. And I want to I I pray for some people. Um, or I feel like the Lord actually just wants to minister to some people, to be honest. I don't even know if we need to pray that much. Um, that was the cue for the worship team to come back up in case you guys missed it. <laughs> so smooth and polished. My own brother-in-law sitting on the front row staring at me. <laughs> Hey, but listen, was anyone surprised to see Merle on stage this morning? Be honest. Was anyone, no, I'm being honest. Like, were you surprised? But the truth is, what else would we do? Like, what else would we do in times like this? If he's not worth praising in a time like this, then he's probably not worth praising ever. And so David writes this, and this is the thing that just lit me up. He says, awake my glory, awake harp and lyre. What's he saying? He's saying, awaken the God inside of me. Like, yes, everything looks bad. Yes, men have teeth like spears and arrows and a tongue like a sword. Yes, they breathe fire. Yes, I've had to lie down among the lions. Yes, in the natural, everything is pretty bad. But then he comes to this place. He says, but, but this hope that's inside of me needs to come awake. And what does he say? He says, awake my harp and my lyre. What's he saying? Awake the weapons of my praise. Awake the tools of praise. Awaken the tools of worship inside of me. And then he says this, and I read this, and I was like, God, I can do this. He said, I will awaken the dawn. See, sorrow lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. But David said, I'm not going to sit back and wait for the morning. I'm going to do something now that's going to change the natural. I'm going to awaken the dawn. I'm going to make the sun get up because I'm going to start worshiping him. Come on, he didn't say, like, I'm going to sit here and be miserable until the morning comes because that's when joy comes. He says, no, you know when joy comes? It comes the minute I decide to put all that stuff behind me, pick up my weapons of praise, and turn the glory of the Lord back into my focus. And I, in doing what I'm doing in this, will change the natural circumstances. I'll awaken the dawn. I'll make the joy come now because I'm going to choose to praise him in the spite of the darkness around me. I'm not going to sit here any longer and say, well, you know, sorrow lasts for the night and the sun hasn't come up yet. He's like, yep, sorrow lasts tonight. So you know what? Let's make the sun come up now. 
And, and I, I, listen, I feel like there's a lot of people, would you guys just stand to your feet with me? I feel like there's a lot of people who have been sitting back and waiting for the morning. You've experienced loss, disappointment, frustration, and you've been, you've been allowing yourself to stay in that place of saying, you know, the sorrow lasts, the Bible says sorrow lasts for the night, joy comes in the morning. And you're waiting on morning, and I think honestly, morning is waiting on you. To grab your weapons of praise, to pick up the harp and the lyre, to pick up the praise, to, to, to awaken the glory within you. He says, I will awaken the dawn. I'm gonna let the, the, the sun know the night is over and it's time for joy. I'm not gonna sit back and wait. I'm not gonna wait till I feel joy to start to praise him. I'm gonna praise him and I know that joy comes in the doing and the sun comes up and the shadows flee and the darkness has to be gone because the light has come. I'm gonna awaken the dawn. And I, I just feel like there's a lot of people who have been in seasons of their life who've experienced loss and disappointment and discouragement and you've allowed yourself to stay in that place. Listen, no condemnation there, but this is what we have to do when truth comes. We have to be changed by it. We have to say, you know what? The way that I thought before has to change because God's truth, God's word has spoke. This isn't Roy's idea. This was the Spirit of God inspiring David to say, I'm going to awaken the dawn. And what I, I feel like the trap that people have been stuck in is the trap of waiting for the morning because they think the feeling of joy is waiting on something external. David said, awaken the glory within me. He said, wake up the harp and the lyre. What's he saying? Wake up, praise. Wake up, worship. Let's awaken the dawn. That's what he said. I will awaken the dawn. I'm going to decide. I'm not staying in that dark place of mourning any longer. Will we have times of grief? Absolutely. But we'll never sink to despair because in between grief and despair, it says we grieve but not as those who have no hope. In between grief and despair, there's this little thing called the goodness of God. And it won't allow me to sink past that. The lowest that I can go is finding his goodness. And so if that's you and, and, and you have been, for whatever reason, it doesn't even matter. Allowed yourself to stay somewhere longer than you know you should. I, I'm not giving anyone a timeline. I'm not telling you what your timeline should be. I'm just saying that David said, you know what? I'm going to do this. Not because of who I am. He said, awaken the glory inside of me. What's he saying? It's this glory of God inside of me that allows me to say, I'm going to wake up praise. I'm going to wake up worship. And I'm going to awaken the dawn. Sorrow lasts for the night. Joy comes in the morning. I need some joy. So let's do, let's awaken the dawn. Come on, if that's you and you've been there and you just want to say, you know what, like, like just as a point of faith saying, in this moment right now, like I just want us to say this together. Come on, say, awaken the glory within me. Wake up, harp. Wake up, Lear. I will awaken the dawn. Morning has lasted for the night. But the sun's coming, and joy unspeakable. Father, we worship you and we praise you for who you are. We thank you, God, that in everything we give thanks. God, not for everything, in everything. Right now, we're in everything, and we're choosing to give thanks because you are worthy of our praise.